Oh, amen. It's good to be with you and happy Mother's Day. I want to say happy Mother's Day to my mom who occasionally watches my sermons even though she doesn't have to. So happy Mother's Day to her. And my mother-in-law has been worshiping with us from Greeley, Colorado for uh, like the last year or so. So um, I, that is just such unexpected joy. And also to the mother of my three boys, Becky, uh, who will be stumbling in here late with them at some point. But happy Mother's Day to her. Uh, Hey, uh, if you've been with us these last few weeks, you know we've been in 1 John, and we've been looking at specifically everything John says about Jesus. And here's the idea. 1 John wrote this letter towards the end of his life. He is trying to clarify some things that often we misunderstand as believers and that many people in his day were misunderstanding. And one of those things is the centrality of Jesus Christ. We get very distracted, and so John is trying to bring us back to the central issue of the gospel gospel being Jesus Christ, right? So that's what we've been these last three weeks. Remember, we're not going linearly through the book, so now we're going to go back to the beginning of 1 John, and we're going to trace another subject that we frequently misunderstand that John wants to clarify for us, and this is the area of obedience. Now, we all know God wants us to obey Him, right? You know, like I'm not telling you something that you do. Oh, really? No, we know God wants us to obey him, right? Right. I promise you this. What we naturally assume obedience is about and what it actually is about biblically are two very different things. Now, John here, he has lived some life. Uh, He has uh, struggled with this himself. He has seen the early church struggle with this. And so one of the things that he's going to try to do in this letter is to clarify for us, hey, this is what it's actually about to obey God. This is the point of this whole thing. So we're going to take these next three weeks. We're going to dive into this subject of obedience. But I want us to be prepared. What he is going to say is going to challenge some of what we assume about this word obedience. So you ready for that? A little bit of humility, a little bit of openness. Let's dive in. 1 John chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 5. John writes this. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus. His son cleanses us from all sin. So John says, God is light. And what he's saying by that is kind of simple. He's just saying God is good. He is like the source of goodness and light. That is what he is. And that is an important thing to know about God. Now, we've talked a little bit about the Gnostics these last few weeks, and you have to understand what Gnostics were about to really understand what John is addressing in this book. One of the things the Gnostics would teach is that the point of the spiritual life is primarily about spiritual knowledge. And they would even go so far as to say that what you know spiritually is more important even than what you do. And so right off the bat, John is like starting to push back on that. He is saying, listen, knowing this truth about God, that God is good, that God is the light, is not just some intellectual exercise, but it is an exercise in fellowship. If we say we have fellowship with him, but we're not walking with him, he's saying, this is what it's about. If we, if we aren't really walking with him, it is a problem, even if we know that God is a God of light. 
The point is to fellowship with the God of light. You know, the Greek word that he uses there for fellowship is one you may be familiar with. It's the Greek word koinonia. Uh, this is often we use it like to talk about what we do here at church, about community and that sort of stuff. It's a word that just means partnership. That's what he's talking about. John is saying, I don't want you to miss this. Faith is not about understanding alone. That is not what it is about. It is about fellowship and actively engaging with God. That is the point of this thing. Now, when we often think about obedience, we often think about morality. That's often what we're thinking about. We often think about we should do the right thing because, you know, God wants us to do the right thing and to be good people. Do you see how John is introducing an idea that's not exactly that? What John is teaching us is, yes, our faith should change how we live, but the focus of the change is fellowship with God. The focus of the change is this word koinonia, walking with him. And so this is the big earth-shattering premise that John introduces in his letter, and we're going to trace for these next couple of weeks here. Obedience is not about being a better person. That is not what obedience with God is about. It is about fellowship with God. That is what he is after. It is about koinonia with the God of the universe. That is the goal. And here's what religious people will not tell you. You can be a very good person, like well-respected by everyone, thought highly of in the community, keep many of the commandments of God, and still not have any fellowship with God. And John's saying, that's not what, that's not what this is about. You also can be a bad person and have fellowship with God. Or you could be a bad person and have no fellowship with God. That's what the Gnostics were doing. Like they were very bad people and they did a lot of bad stuff. And, uh, but it's, it's worth noting here what John is not saying to correct the Gnostics. He is not saying, you bad people. You need to be better people. Shame on you. Would you shape up and stop acting so bad? No, 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 no. Instead, he is saying... It's not about what you know, it is about fellowship and walking with God. That is the goal. And he's trying to get them to see their spiritual life a little bit more truly and be a little bit more honest just about what's happening in their relationship with God. Look at what he says next, verse 8. He's trying to encourage honesty here. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word's not in us. This is a very important passage. I'm going to come back to it in a second. First, can I go on a little tangent just for a minute? Can I tell you something that I really want to be true of us as a community of faith? I, I think this is true, but I just want to say it out loud so we can all be on the same page. I really want us to be a community that never freaks out about sin. Never. Like, we don't see this in our Savior, like panic about sin. Like, can we just never be the people who, like, clutch our pearls and say things like, why, I've never. <laughs> Degenerate sinners, I've never. You know, like, like, we should never be like that, no matter the sin. And the reason we shouldn't be like that is not because sin isn't bad. It is bad. 
But it's because we're doing what John's talking about here. We are so totally honest with ourselves about our own sin. We are so totally honest with God about our own sin. We are so totally honest with each other about our sins that consequently we never give ourselves permission to look down on somebody else because of their sin issues. That's what I think God's trying to create in us. A little bit of context for these verses. Uh, Why would John say it this way? In John's day, there were these people called secessionists. And what they believed is uh, they'd claimed that they'd literally stopped sinning. And this is part of the Gnostic heresy that was out there. Uh, And they'd kind of left and started their own spiritual community. And so one of the things they were teaching was, we don't really need Jesus' atonement because we kind of, like we're done with sin. Um, I know this is true. Like none of us in this room would ever believe that. None of us would be like, I don't sin, right? Like we would never say that. But when we allow ourselves to look down on somebody else because of their sin. And, you know, it's, it's very subtle in our minds. We're like, yeah, no, 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 I, I'm a sinner. Saved by grace, I'm a sinner. But do you see what's happening over there? Gosh. Wow. You know, like, and it's just that subtle twist in our mind. Like, like that is the beginning of this lie right? And the end of it is, I don't sin at all, right? But that's the beginning of it. And this is why John is warning us and he's challenging us. He goes and says, go the opposite direction. Talk frequently with God about your sin. That's what he's encouraging us to do. Like your sinful behaviors, your sinful motives, just all of it. Talk about it. And he's trying to reassure us that when we do that, like, hey, God is always cleansing us. You'll have confidence in God's cleansing power, and you won't have arrogance about sin issues. One of my uh, favorite books on following Jesus is a little book uh, called The Cure. And you should go buy it. It's way cheaper than the book I recommended last week. So buy The Cure. Anyway, um, so and it describes this. It describes how like each of us, metaphorically speaking, it's like we're standing in front of a giant pile of our sin. Um, and like we are, like, let's be honest. I mean, we're all just so broken. I'm not trying to insult you. We just, we all have all sorts of sin issues in our life. Uh, not, you know, not you, but also, yes, you, like me too. Like we just have like this giant pile of sin, like with God. Okay. And the relevant question these authors ask is this, where would we place God in that picture? And what most of us tend to do with this giant pile of sin, and we're standing on one side of it, is we tend to assume that like God is way over on the other side of it. Like this giant pile of sin is like between us and him. And so we probably better get that pile down to a reasonable size so that then we could at least connect on some level with God. Now, what the authors reject and what John is rejecting here and what we should reject is that that is the accurate picture. John says it is Jesus' blood that cleanses us from all of that sin and that God's desire is to have fellowship with us. That's what he's wanted all along. And so God has removed totally the consequences of our pile of sin with him so that now there's nothing between us. And so the the more accurate picture is that because of the blood of of Jesus, what has happened is like there's this pile of sin, and it's as if God has kind of walked around to the pile, uh, walked around the pile over to our side, and now he stands with us, arm around us, in fellowship with us, and we're together looking at that pile. And God's like, you know, yeah, that's, I mean, it's a lot, you know, (laughs) take a day off, (laughs) you know. (laughs) 
once in a while. But he's like, listen, what I want is for you to have a full life. Can you see how some of this stuff might get in the way of that? Let's, I mean, let's just, let's work on it together. That that is the posture of God. Confession is responding to this posture of God. That's all it is. That's what confession is about. It's not about groveling. Confession is saying to God, I, yeah, I see it too. I see it too. I, I see that you died for all of that, all of it. It's all like you took it all to the cross. Would you help me with it? That's confession. And what John is saying is if you have fellowship with God, that conversation is one you're going to have a lot. You're going to frequently have. You're not going to ignore sin because you're not afraid because he's with you in it. He's fellowshipping with you. And the fringe benefit of that, it will turn you into a person who does not freak out about somebody else's pile. Now, let's keep reading. I know the chapter 2 starts right there, but John's in the middle of a thought. This stuff is too good. Let's keep going. Chapter 2, verse 1, John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But... If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So John uses a big word there, propitiation. If you uh, got onto Step Bible this last week, a website that I recommended, you'll uh, look that word up, and it's the Greek word halasmos, and it will tell you how many times it's used in the New Testament. Spoiler alert, it's only used twice, and it's used both times by John in the letter 1 John. Halasmos, propitiation. What the word means, like the short definition, is atoning sacrifice, but practically, let me tell you what this word means for you with God. Propitiation means God will never punish you for your sins. Never. Never. Propitiation. Sometimes, like, sin will do something, and it'll cause something bad in our life, and we'll be like, oh, God's, like, punishing me. No, 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 that's just cause and effect. That's just natural consequences. That is not the judgment of God. God will never punish you for your sins because propitiation, helasmos. Think of this word like this, propitiation. Uh, you could kind of picture it like God is up in heaven, and he has a giant bowl, right? big old bowl, and into that bowl, he has put like all of the judgment, all of the punishment, all of the consequences that you deserve because of your giant pile of sin. Jesus being the propitiation for our sin means that in that moment on the cross, God took that bowl that contained 100% of your punishment and judgment, and he poured it out onto Jesus. And the concept is so beautiful because the idea is Jesus being God, it's as if God poured all of that out on himself so that you would never have to experience a moment of it. And the best part of it is he did that before time began. Because he lives outside of time, he did that for you before time began, like for not just the sins you've done in the past, but for all the sins you will ever do in your entire life. And so the idea of this bowl is it is now empty and you couldn't fill it up again if you wanted to because it's already been done. 
That's what propitiation means. That bowl is totally empty and it will never be filled again. And John is saying, hey, we shouldn't sin, but also if we sin, when we sin, Jesus is the propitiation. We know we will never be punished because halasmos. It's beautiful, right? So here's the question. You might be a little ahead of me. I know we're not supposed to ask questions like this in church, but this is where my mind goes. If we know, uh, did you see how I made sure I wasn't about to fall off the stage? Because what I'm about to say, I don't feel good about it. Like if we know God's never gonna punish us for the sins, why would we ever stop trying to sin? Like, have you ever wondered that? Like, why don't we just live it up? Like we're never gonna get punished because of what Jesus did. This is really important. If you hear nothing else, hear this this morning. Um, if the only reason you were avoiding sin in the first place was so you wouldn't get punished, can I just observe something? That's not obedience. That's something else. That's self-preservation. And I'm not sure self-preservation is something that really honors God, right? So if it isn't out of self-preservation, just trying to escape punishment, so I'm going to try to avoid sin, and we know we're not going to be judged, then why would we try to avoid sin? John tells us right here in the text, if we've come to know him, then we'll keep his commandments. And again, he's pointing us to this fellowship issue, this connection issue with God, this community, this koinonia with God. And he says, listen, when you know how deeply God loves you, when you know how like he, he went to great lengths to take away all the consequence and the punishment of your sin, when you know how much he desires to be in community with you, you just might find that in your heart, trust of him and love for him is grown a little bit. And what do you do when you love and trust someone? You listen to them. You, you start to value the things that they value. And so why would we keep any commandments if we aren't going to get punished? Well, because we've come to know him and his love for us. We've come to trust what he wants for us. Because we love and trust God is the only reason we would ever keep his commandments. It's the only reason given biblically that John gives. John summarizes and ends the thought with this. Look at verse four. He says, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth's not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So the heart of what he is saying here is this beautiful connection between knowing, abiding, loving God, and walking like he walked, becoming like Jesus. Like there's this life, this way in which Jesus lived. And as we love him more, as we abide in him, we will naturally step into that. And if we're not naturally stepping into that, that may be the issue. It's like as if what he's describing is this Jesus who's like constantly saying to us, and I love this like picture of Jesus who's constantly saying, hey, 
Come on. Like, let's, let's walk together. Like, let's go do something together. Let, let's step into some things. And, you know, along the way, we'll deal with some of that stuff that's holding you back in life and some of those things you've got to heal from. We're going to deal with all that sort of stuff. But let's step in to this purposeful adventure that God has created you for. John says that is the goal of abiding, is that you're walking like he walked. You know, uh, what Jesus says to us, it, like it's so beautiful and com- compelling, this invitation. What he doesn't say to us is, would you just stop misbehaving? Like that's not the voice of Jesus. Just shape up. Like that's not the voice of Jesus. It's also not the voice of Jesus. Come and be educated in the ways of God, right? Like it's not an educational thing. What he says to us is an active thing. It's the same thing that he said to John when John was a young man. He said, come Come follow me around for a while. Like, like, come live this life with me. You want to walk with me? You want an adventure full of purpose and goodness? Then follow me this way. John is just saying to us, you know, don't act like you know him if you're not going to go on the adventure with him. That's obedience. Saying yes to that adventure. Like Jesus, he is not a subject in a textbook. He is not a list of things to do and a list of things to avoid. He is an adventure to be embraced. That's what abiding in obedience is about. You know, I think this issue of obedience, um, it's easy to get misunderstandings, uh, like sewn into our faith. Sometimes like we get so focused on the black and white rules like, I got to do this, got to avoid this. We make ob- obedience all about avoiding sin, which it's not exactly. Like, I know how we get there. Uh, sometimes we go in the other direction. We're like, well, why have grace? So I just, I'll just do what I want. Nothing really matters. I'll just, you know, nothing's a big deal. Both of those approaches really miss the point. John is saying the point of this idea of obedience has everything to do with walking with God in trust. Fellowship. That is the goal of obedience. Maybe let me restate it this way. What God wants for our behavior, it's less about stopping something than it is about starting something. That's the focus of this. Whether we just like stop caring about our sin like the secessionists did, we're like, I don't care. Or even if we just focus all of our life on stopping our sinful behaviors. Like at the end of those two lives, neither person is any better off. What John is encouraging us is to start abiding with Jesus, to start connecting with God, to start walking with him in the adventure of the kingdom. That is the point of the whole obedience thing. So let me give you three things to start today. I'm not going to tell you what to stop, but just here's three things from the text that I think it's obvious we need to start doing these things together. Here's the first. We need to start trusting that Jesus knows what we need. Like, just start there. Like, start focusing on this idea that the God who gave his life for you is actually trustworthy. You know, like like this God who wouldn't give up on you even when you deserved it is not now trying to wreck your life by what he asks. He's trustworthy. And this is an obedience issue. Start trusting Jesus really knows me. He he really knows what I need. That's a place to start. Here's a second thing. We need to start trusting Jesus enough to get honest. 
This confession thing John is talking about, it is not about groveling before God. That is not what confession is about. It is more like trusting that the God who puts his arm around you is the one with whom you are safe. You can talk to him about anything. There's no one that you can talk to more honestly than Jesus. And practically, I think what that means is not just that we talk to him when we've committed a sin and we say, I'm so sorry, I did it again. But it means we have, like, we talk about our broken heart and our broken desires and our mixed motives and, like, all that stuff that's going on inside of us. It is those gut-level conversations with God. That is what confession is about. We will not have those if we do not trust that we are totally safe with him. Propitiation means we have no reason to not be honest. We have nothing to fear with God. We need to start walking in that. Here's the third thing. We need to start trusting Jesus enough to say yes to the adventure. Would you hear me when I say this? Like this life, this Christian life, this life is not about being a good person. Like there's lots of good people in the world. That's not what this life is about. This life is about walking with Jesus. That's what this life is about. Like he has something for you more than you are experiencing. And if you think, well, oh, you know, what, what would it look like if God had his dream for me? It is so short-sighted to think that his dream for you is just that you would sin less. His dream for you is the grand adventure of koinonia with the God of the universe. That is the dream. And until you step into that purpose... We're fooling ourselves by calling it obedience. Like we have to start taking those risks with him, start believing that there's something that he wants us to be involved in that's a part of his kingdom plan, start looking for those moments to step into with him. That is obedience. Obedience is not the passive avoidance of bad things. That's a weak definition of obedience. Obedience is the active participation in the adventure of God's kingdom. Do you see how that's maybe a little different than what we would naturally assume? Um, maybe to clarify this, let me close with uh, an example, kind of a silly metaphor, but I, I think it works on some levels. So, uh, so this July, my wife and I are celebrating 24 years of marriage. Yay! That was, yeah. I mean, I appreciate the golf clap. That was good. No. Uh, <laughs> So here's, here's the illustration. Here's the uh, metaphor that I want to use. Imagine that we are out on our anniversary date. Um, not like you and me, like me and her, right? And you're there. Like you're like at a table next to us, you're eavesdropping or something. But anyway, she and I are talking on our anniversary date. Somehow you overhear this. It's a little creepy. You should think about that. But nevertheless, you're here, you're with us, you're on the date, and we're talking. And I lean over to my wife and I look her in the eyes and I say, you know, Becky, I am never going to leave you or forsake you. I, I'm, you know, I'm going to continue, Becky, to, to be a good husband to you until the day I die. Uh, because, Becky, you know, we signed a contract 24 years ago. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure it's legally binding. Um, plus, I, like I've heard, I haven't done the research, but I've heard divorce is really expensive. 
Um, also, I, I like my job. Like, I don't know if I just divorce you for no reason. Like, will people still listen to me as a pastor? I don't know. But also, like I was thinking about the idea of dating again at my age. Ugh. It was so stressful. Um, so for all of those reasons, Becky, I'm going to do the right thing and stay married to you because I'm sure that's what you want. Happy anniversary. <laughs> That would be ridiculously offensive, right? Some of you know my wife and love her and you're offended for her right now. I'm just kidding. I would never say that. That would be horribly offensive. But can I ask, why is that offensive? Because all of those statements are factually accurate, right? They're all true statements. But what makes it offensive is that each and every statement has nothing to do with my wife or our marriage. Each and every statement, those reasons for wanting to be married, they are 100% about me. Specifically, my desire to avoid pain and my desire to be thought of as a good person. Can you imagine that a lot of times that is the sort of obedience that we bring to God and lay at his feet? And I don't know that he appreciates it any more than my wife would. The sort of obedience that's about our own pride, that's about our desire for self-preservation, that's not what uh, this fellowship thing is about. You know what's really true in my marriage after 24 years? I want to be married to my wife more today than ever before. Um, and let's not overly romanticize that. Like, this is true, 24 years, we, she and I, we've seen the worst of each other. Like, every, like, this is marriage, right? Like, we realize this. Every marriage is the story of two deeply broken people doing their best to love and care for each other despite their mutual sin. That's marriage, right? And I'm not saying that to, to discourage anyone. Like, that's just the true marriage story is that God redeems it in the midst of all of our sin against each other. And I look at our life together, Becky and I, our marriage together, there is no one that I love and trust on this planet more than her. And I mean, no offense to any of you. We fought for that with each other. We have worked hard to learn how to love each other. And you know what? We've had to work hard to relearn how to love each other when we've both changed. No one on the planet has sacrificed more to love me than my wife. And the same is true for her with me. And I'm not going to leave her or forsake her, but not because I'm trying to avoid the bad stuff of divorce. Also not because I want you people to think well of me, but because I love her. Like, like I trust her and I found with her a deep koinonia, a fellowship with her. And that's why I'm still at it. That's why I'm trying to figure out how can I love her better. The point of marriage is obviously not just to stay marriage, but it, married, but it's to love each other, to love each other well. Similarly with God, the point of the spiritual life is not about just doing the right thing. It is about fellowship. And I know that may not be the perfect example, it's just a metaphor, but can you see how that may be just a little bit different than what we often think of or talk about. John is telling us it is about starting to connect with, starting to abide in, starting to walk with Jesus. That has always been the point. The point of obedience is not about being good. It's about connection with God. It's not about morality. It is about fellowship. And if we think of it any other way, we are missing the point. 
And so what I want to ask today is just could we start shifting the way we view this obedience word? And we'll stay in this for the next couple of weeks, but could we start that shift right now? And I just want to free you from this. God doesn't need or want your sense of duty. It's not what he's after. God doesn't need or want your prideful morality. Has not ever been what he's after from you. He certainly doesn't need your fearful self-preservation. God wants you. God wants you. That's always been what he's after. That's what he's always wanted. That's why he died for you. Not to guilt you into shaping up, but to free you so you could walk with him. God wants you. And anything less than that is not actually obedience. Could we just start with trusting that? That this good God, this God of light, just simply wants to walk with us. Let me pray over us. Lord, we come to you as we often do when we encounter your grace with a sense that this might be too good to be true. But we trust by faith that it is true. That Jesus has freed us He's freed us from all of the consequences of our sin that now we can just press in. We can just walk with. We can just uh, abide with you as we were meant to from the beginning. We trust it, Lord. Even though it doesn't make sense, even though we're not like that as people, we trust that you're not like us, that you're full of grace, you're full of mercy, and that you really want us. Amen.